0: You're listening to Simulcast, a podcast about healthcare simulation. So, welcome to Simulcast. I'm Victoria Brazel and I'm joined today by Jennifer Keist who is my guest in talking about all things clinical deterioration and, in particular, how we prepare our medical students. Uh, I think it's got relevance for those who teach and learn in the uh, professional edu- education space, not just medical students. And I think it's also going to be of interest to those who are perhaps countenancing the idea of higher research degrees in simulation because this discussion is based on uh, Jen's PhD work over the last few years. So with that, welcome, Jen. How are you? Great. Thank you, Victoria.
1: I'm well. I hope you are too.
0: I am indeed. And uh, for our listeners, it might be great if you could tell us a little bit about you and uh, what you do in SIM.
1: Thanks, Victoria. Uh, Yes, my name is Jen Keast. I originally trained as a nurse uh, in the 1970s, um, moved from nursing education into medical education when simulation arrived in Australia in the late 90s. And um, I've been exclusively, I guess, teaching medical students for about 10 years. Um, it was just really opportunistic that I got involved in medical student simulation. Uh, but when I did, I realised really quickly that I loved it. Uh, that was kind of my thing within simulation. So I've, I've stayed in it ever since, uh, working at various clinical schools across the state.
0: Yeah, fantastic. So uh, there's nothing quite like length of time doing something to start to generate some uh, research questions, I guess, which led you into thinking about doing a PhD. But that is a big step. Uh, Many people don't do that. But uh, tell us what
1: led to that interest for you? That's an interesting question, because I was teaching medical students for four or five years, and then moved out of that to do other simulation related activities. And uh, when I moved back into medical student education, I was really dissatisfied with um, the methods that we were using to facilitate those simulations. And I'm I'm not sure what it was that changed within me in that time away from teaching, but when I came back into it, I started to think more deeply from an instructional design perspective uh, how we could better support uh, learning. Uh, within simulation for for novice learners,
0: yeah, and I guess this is not really surprising, is it? As a field matures, we start to understand why an in situ sim with an advanced healthcare team might be quite different to a educationally focused simulation for a group of medical students. But that has it wasn't where we were starting fifteen or twenty years ago. I agree. So uh, it takes work of yours and many others, I guess, to start to refine that.
1: That's right. I think what initially happened was when uh, we started using simulation in healthcare, that it was for more senior clinicians, registrars and consultants. And then we started to broaden out and think, you know, how else could we use simulation? And I think what we did was kind of adapted the, especially the facilitation role within simulation. We adapted that to try and meet the needs of medical students so it was kind of a top-down approach instead of really looking at what they needed and, uh, and using instructional design from the bottom up to support that learning. And I think that's where that shift changed, changed in me. Um, that I started to think about, well, actually, this isn't working anymore. Um, Let's take a step back and really look at what it, what it is that they need and maybe look at look at some theory that might support that. And once I started reading about some of those things, such as cognitive load theory, uh, I started to think that perhaps we weren't really doing them a favour by putting them under stress in simulation, for example. And I, and I think even with pause and discuss, uh, which a lot of people would have heard of and which is a fairly traditional way of teaching medical students, I think that they're still in a fairly stressed um, frame of mind, uh, just running up to the time out in the pause and discuss. And I really wanted to smooth that out so that there weren't sort of highs and lows of stress within that experience for them. So very different to the stress that you might deliberately apply to a more senior clinician.
0: Uh, And I guess it's important because this really you hope, forms the basis of most uh, educational scholarship is we just start to think and reflect on what we're doing and wonder if there could be better ways. So it's also a nice segue into the work that you've then done as part of this higher research degree. And I'm going to sort of put you on the spot with a bit of an elevator pitch here. You know, when when you're in the lift or you're walking past and you say you've just finished your PhD and someone says, oh, What was it about? And you know you've got about 30 or 40 seconds to describe what it's about. What do you say?
1: Uh, The Two things uh, really underpin this research, and they're not related. But one was what we've just discussed, that I thought there was a better way to facilitate learning within simulation for novice learners such as medical students. And secondly, from a content perspective, that we weren't addressing the needs of junior doctors um, by equipping them with the skills that they needed to manage clinical deterioration. So there was the content aspect and the process aspect that I really wanted to change. So we introduced two interventions into our program to address those things and, and evaluated their um, efficacy or their effectiveness.
0: Yeah, fantastic. That sounds like the best possible description you could make. It, it belies maybe the 250 uh, pages <laughs> of the thesis. But um, uh, all right, well, let's get let's do a little bit of a deep dive. So it's one thing to come up with, uh, I guess, an issue, which you've just described. So uh, how do you go about then? What's the process that you went about sort of refining your specific research questions and choosing some methods to examine them?
1: Mm. Uh, it's interesting because... At first, I didn't really know what it was that I was going to uh, analyse or examine, if you like, but I had one basic question and that was what does learning look like? If we change the content by introducing clinical deterioration into all simulations very early in their training at second year and we change the facilitation style, what does that learning look like What is it that changes in the student as they progress? How does their thinking change? How do they demonstrate that reconceptualising of textbook knowledge into clinical knowledge at the simulated bedside? So I just started with what does learning look like? And from there, as you read more during the lit review and think more and watch more, um, you start to come up with things that you identify that are significant in their progression. And start to identify the task work and the teamwork uh, skills that you want them to learn, and start to see patterns about when it is that those things become more automated in their approach to their patient management. So it's, it's an iterative process; it's ongoing. Um, you start to think differently, you read more, you talk to people, your supervisors give you some direction, and, and that that all helps with that uh, deep dive that you call it.
0: Yes, and uh, as you say, the review of the literature and the examination of what sort of theoretical basis we start from there is important and you have looked at cognitive load theory, you're talking about many other fundamentals related to constructivism and a variety of uh, methods by which people acquire any kind of knowledge but particularly clinical knowledge. This theoretical dive, I guess, scares a lot of people but at the same time my colleague Jesse Spur says there's nothing so practical as an excellent theory. Uh, how did you did you embrace that easily, or was it a little bit of a stretch for you as a very practical person from a, you know, clinical nursing background?
1: Yeah, that's a really interesting question, and I, I'm sort of chuckling here at the other end because. Um, you know, I'm the sort of person that normally sits in the audience and listens listens to a presentation and totally glazes over when theory is mentioned. You know, I've never been a person to embrace theory. I didn't ever kind of understand where it where it was meant to fit uh, within presentations or within our thinking. But I, I have to agree with Jesse there because when you start to look for theory that fits your context and supports perhaps what you've been intuitively thinking or doing in the past, then it's really exciting. So for example, something that bothered me in the pause and discuss uh, style of facilitation was that students would go from the very hot action of the simulation to what I called the cold inaction of the mini debrief during the timeout. You know, we would deliberately turn them or pause the mannequin and the beeping would stop and they'd stop breathing and we'd step away into a so-called safe area away from the mannequin and that to me looked like very cold inaction and when I discovered flow theory I became really excited because that's exactly what I was looking for to support my thinking that it was better that the students stayed within the action all the way along rather than going from hot to cold so you know, I, I actually got very excited about theory in the end. So, flow theory supported that thinking. Uh, the stress and the cognitive overload that I felt students were experiencing in the run up to the timeout was supported with cognitive load theory. And my feeling that students needed uh, repeated opportunities to practice. Kind of rapid fire decision making was also supported with instance based learning theory, and that came from the world of critical thinking within uh, nuclear power plants. So, um, as I said, once you discover a theory that fits your context and supports your thinking, it's actually really exciting. And yeah, I can't that's believe, fantastic! It. I can't believe I just said that. In fact. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I, I, five years ago, I would never have believed that I'd be sitting here talking about how exciting theory could be, but that's kind of how you change and develop over the course of the time.
0: Yes, and and also you've created the interconnections between them as well. Uh, so I'll come back to a couple of the points you made about the in-game coaching and about the sort of longitudinal approach, mm. uh, but it might be useful for our listeners to just step us through what is the experience of your student slash study participants uh, in their longitudinal sim program uh, in clinical deterioration? And then what did you do in terms of data collection?
1: So, uh, we have a four year MD curriculum, uh, and the students in their second year uh, participate in a longitudinal simulation program over the eight or nine months of the academic year. And in that time, they participate in 15 simulations that are based on core presentations. And in each of those simulations, we now deliberately introduce an aspect of clinical deterioration. So, every patient will need some sort of intervention to support their breathing or their circulation. And in the past, you know, some of the patients needed that, but we didn't routinely have every patient needing a DRS approach and stabilization before we got into the clinical reasoning. So now we embed that in every simulation so that we overteach DRS ABC, they overlearn it, and hopefully it became becomes very automated over the course of the year. Um, the simulations are also linked to their curriculum in that if they're doing a surgical placement, they have. Uh, for surgical simulations, medical placement for medical simulations, et cetera, so it links in with other learning they have in the clinical environment and other formal learning. Uh, during third year, they leave the clinical school and do specialty health rotations um, such as women's health and children's health, etc, and in that time do very little uh, acute adult medicine and ver- and no simulation at all. So when they come back to us in fourth year, in the second half of fourth year for their preparation for practice component of the curriculum and do a couple more sims, they've actually had an 18-month retention interval where they've not done any simulations at all. So that, interve- uh, that um, uh, retention interval actually worked really well for me in this thesis because I could I could analyse in second year the learning that took place, the learning progression, and then look at retention of that learning when they came back in fourth year. Uh, So in answer to your second question, what I did, I had uh, three sample groups, three three groups of second-year students, five in each group, and I video recorded their 15 simulations um, during second year and then the two simulations that they participate in in fourth year. Uh, And as well as that, I did focus group interviews at the end of second and fourth year um, and got their perspective on their learning progression. So that was looking at learning in second year and retention in fourth year and to try and look at transfer in between, I did at the end of second year run some what I call pop-up simulations where I just walk into the library and grab a group of students who weren't in their um, normal groups and just tell them that Man had collapsed and I needed someone to come and manage him. So they weren't timetabled. The students didn't have any prior warning. They couldn't pre-plan who was in charge or who was going to do what, and they were working in different groups. So I I tried to look at transfer of learning in a spontaneous um, clinical deterioration scenario, um, albeit still within simulation.
0: Yeah, so actually quite a novel setup and pretty comprehensive setup as well. And also looking at uh, different aspects of your learning, as you say, of the sort of acquisition, the retention, and then the transfer. Tell us a little bit about this uh, in-game coaching that you did as part of, I guess, an evolutionary in your sim program that you really wanted to look at.
1: Mm. Well, as I said, I was dissatisfied with the pause and discuss style of facilitation and I was looking for something that kept extraneous cognitive load at a minimum and something that would keep the the students in flow within the the simulation. And so I looked outside of healthcare and uh, from the world of serious gaming, I found a role called Puckster, which is an in the moment kind of Coach that guides the uh, the game players um, and in that way they manage the the player 's cognitive load and control the flow of the action without disrupting it. Um, And that's heavily underpinned by the cognitive apprenticeship model uh, where teaching methods such as modelling and monitoring and scaffolding are provided at the time they're required rather than later during a time out. So there's kind of this continuous background dialogue to the action uh, that doesn't take over or interfere with that action. And of course that's that, that background dialogue is fairly consistent at the start of the year when students are need, needing a lot of support and coaching. And that reduces over time as the scaffolding that's required to support learning reduces and that there's less for the coach to go and you, to do rather. And you, you go from in-game or playing coach to kind of a sideline coach, uh, by the end of the year. So. Oh, just for example, rather than pausing a simulation to discuss, say, low blood pressure that the students may not have noticed or addressed, you know, the coach can prompt, what do you think of that blood pressure? Or I'm just reminding you to keep an eye on that blood pressure. So that's an example of the constant dialogue within the action. Or let's say they decide to give a 500 ml fluid bolus and then um, you can confirm that by saying, yeah, look, I think that's a great idea. So you're confirming their action. They're not then second, second guessing themselves and wondering if 500 is actually what they should be doing. And they've achieved that small proximal goal and the associated satis- satisfaction that comes with that within the SIM and can then proceed to the next step. So it's really all about setting them up to succeed and not to fail.
0: Yes, and the other thing about that is it's efficient. You're not then taking them away you're in a debrief and debrief and spending five minutes going. So you gave five hundred mils. You know, I thought that was good. Tell us what you're thinking. I mean, some topics need that level of complexity analysis, but you're talking about look, it's going pretty well, and you're literally coaching. So I think that's a really lovely example. The other thing that it seems to pick up on is just this idea. Uh, probably more from work integrated learning but here it is simulation integrated learning which is we're not trying to separate out the learning from the simulation we're in fact trying to combine the two and I do think this is something that we've got as a more broader challenge in health professions education is unfortunately this habit where we have to be taken away from work to do our learning instead of trying to think how do we integrate these two things. Mm.
1: Yeah, that's right. I think that that, um, the in-game coaching, though, very much depends on having an awareness of the learner's zone of proximal development. So it would be very hard for someone to come in and, say, coach a one-off sim session with students. Uh, The benefit of a longitudinal program and seeing them all the time is that you can plot kind of where where their zone currently is and then give them something that's challenging enough for them to complete with the help of an expert other, which is you, the coach. In the room, um, and not too simple, so that they become bored. Um, so that can be tricky if you are not regularly uh, coaching the same group.
0: And I guess this feeds into also your idea about having a longitudinal curriculum, and part of that is a bit of a longitudinal facilitator
1: relationship. That's right, exactly. Um, there are there's just now because of this work, there's a, a lot of kind of background planning going into our simulations and we can now say things like at simulation number five, we will coach uh, ISPA or we will coach closed-loop communication so that in a way we're kind of drip-feeding, if you like, different elements of task work and and teamwork into the simulation so that they're not random and they're not uh, overwhelming the students you know um, at the start in the very first one or two simulations you need to let quite a few things go as the coach and not pick up on them otherwise there'd be too many elements to to be commenting on so you need to be mindful of what you have Uh, overlooked, deliberately overlooked in the first few SIMs uh, so that you can remember to pick them up in other SIMs. So there's no risk of negative transfer. It's just that I'll leave that for now. It's not a focus of today's SIM, but I'll I'll make sure I talk about that in SIM number three or SIM number four. So you can plan exactly what it is you're introducing into the SIMs over and above the clinical aspect of whatever the case is.
0: Excellent. So essentially you've got a program that is longitudinally developed, a new role or at least a modified role of the in-game coach. You've got a process that seems to me fairly carefully scaffolded. It's also integrated with their progression through the course and what they're doing in their other learning. And it seems like it's also carefully sequenced so that you stay in this zone of proximal development you know, you found this found this worked. I think is probably the synopsis. So tell us how it worked and
1: what are the sort of. So I used a form of cognitive task analysis to look at what it was that, say, an expert team would do, from a task work and a teamwork perspective, in the setting of clinical deterioration, and then I I uh, used event marking software to identify when those things happened. Uh, And I could see consistently the things that students found quite easy to manage and the things that uh, across all groups were consistently challenging to manage. For example, the circulation assessment is something that uh, all of them found challenging. Uh, The fact that there are quite a few elements to the step of circulation uh, and uh, this kind of mystery that often surrounds how much fluid is the appropriate amount to give to a patient. So because of that, because we can identify uh, that the circulation, say, is a sticking point and they don't really start to manage it competently until about simulation number four, uh, what we do is that we don't uh, now have a very significant simulation, uh, sorry, circulation element in the first four simulations. We just keep it fairly simple, where the patient needs a little bit of fluid and the blood pressure responds um, quite readily, and the cannula's is already in. If you don't do those things, they struggle to get a cannula in and they're not sure how much fluid to give. So we can um, we can scaffold the learning around circulation uh, so that it fits in with the identified um, timelines from the data analysis Um, and then from there I've developed guidelines around all those kinds of things so if it is a new coach coming in to teach a group of students we can say this is simulation number three, they'll have difficulty with the circulation assessment. Uh, All we need to do today is to make sure that they complete that assessment and if they don't get around to giving fluid, we'll leave that for next time. So things like that uh, are what came out of it. And it's interesting because uh, one of the main objectives of of the approach to clinical deterioration was getting them to uh, automatically apply the DRS ABC framework to every patient that they saw And what we found or what I found was that it took six simulations for them to do that. Uh, Up until the sixth simulation, they were overlooking steps or they were starting to use clinical reasoning uh, skills to try and figure out what was wrong and they overlooked the blood pressure or the hypoxia. Uh, So what we've found is the dose, if you like, if you're wanting students to use a systematic approach to clinical deterioration. They need at least six simulations in order to do that. So uh, that was an an interesting finding. So that's just an example of something that, uh, that I found.
0: So I'm going to, you know, because again, we won't do justice to all your findings, but I'm going to sort of, I guess, cut to the chase. So for those of us who've got some medical students, they come to Sims, they love Sims, who knows why, who knows if they have an effect, Uh, what do you think would be our biggest bang for buck things that we could start doing to really optimize the effectiveness of either, and I'm going to talk about medical student Sims because that's what I do, but I'm hoping, uh, and I suspect, that many of these principles would apply for other professions as well.
1: Mm. So I think the use of systematic frame, consistent use of systematic frameworks is really important. And if possible, if you can have a longitudinal program across the curriculum, that then obviously offers repeated opportunities for deliberate practice of those acute management skills using those structured frameworks so that it it eventually becomes an automated response to the situation. Secondly, you need to have an awareness of where the students are in their knowledge and skill development. And as I said, that's really their zone of proximal development so that the simulation content is appropriate uh, for their level of learning. And thirdly, they need a safe, supported SIB environment. Now, we always say that within simulation that we're trying to create this safe environment. But I think um, the coach in the room um, is supporting learning through the provision of appropriate scaffolding um, so that those challenging tasks that the students face can be accomplished really through a shared teamwork model with the coach. Um, in other words, as I said, setting them up to succeed. So I think consistency... If possible, a longitudinal programme, that might not be possible at all institutions. A knowledge of their zone of proximal development, whether you know that or someone else tells you that through guidelines, and then the the support of the the cognitive support and the safety of the sim environment and the facilitator.
0: Yeah, and that's actually in a lens that I hadn't immediately thought about with the in-game coach, but as you say, it's supporting the psychological safety, uh, which is you know, a scary sim and then just being nice afterwards uh, where there's cognitively overloaded, that's not psychological safety. Whereas what you're saying is by all means get people in the right zone where it's challenging enough but also actually Uh, have the situation where the support is also of the amount that people are going to feel like they are set up for success but at the same time not be soft all right well I guess uh, finally having done this work um, again just sort of stepping back to the process of doing higher degree research um, you have to publish some of this stuff now is that right what can we look forward to
1: Yeah, Um, so I've written a couple couple of abstracts for conferences next year and over summer I'm planning to uh, try and get published, write some uh, journal articles um, and uh, just doing some local presentations at various clinical schools as well. So that's the plan for the summer to kind of develop those things, yeah.
0: Yeah, and as with um, all publishing, we hope that leads to people building on the work that you've done, looking at it maybe in other contexts, and uh, continuing to, you know, refine and and generalise the frameworks that you've done so much great work on.
1: Yeah, that's right. In fact, I'm I'm can, in a true edu- educational design research. Um, way, I'm still refining the, the, that coaching role and trying to add new elements to the simulation program. Uh, and the other thing I'm doing at the end of this year is um, doing a little bit of research with uh, interns that have been through our program to try and see if there is any evidence of transfer of the frameworks that they used um, to the real world. You know, w- Were they able to recall them? Uh, were they useful? Did it influence some um, decision-making Uh, around clinical deterioration so there might be something in that as well
0: yeah the sort of long term retention and transfer Mm. uh, and so difficult to do in terms of undergraduate um, professional education you know trying to get around the sort of attribution error of all the things that
1: have contributed to their
0: performance by this stage that's
1: right exactly
0: All right. Well, look, that's been uh, wonderful. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us, Jen. And I guess for simulcast listeners, I feel like this is yet another – Uh, instance where we can really think about how learning can inform our practice uh, how our practice can lead to scholarship and in this particular case for us to just think about the way that we design simulation for our junior learners and in particular how we might use uh, to use your words the sort of instructional design process and uh, and fit that to obviously within the context of our local institution so thank you very much Jen it's been a pleasure talking to you.
1: Thanks so much, Victoria. Uh, Thank you for having me on. I've really enjoyed it. Excellent. Well, Simulcast listeners, this is Victoria Brazel signing off. You're
0: listening to Simulcast.